we are about to have a conversation about the different types of adoptions. Join us today on Fostering the Future. Welcome to the Fostering the Future podcast, a show about all things child welfare, dependency, adoption, and foster care. Here are your hosts, veterans in the world of child welfare, Jack and Kat. We believe that every human has incredible and equal value regardless of what side of the courtroom we sit on. We hope that everyone feels welcome and accepted here on Fostering the Future. Make sure you follow us on Facebook or Instagram as Fostering the Future Podcast, or check us out on our website at fosteringthefuturepodcast.org. This is Nicole, and I am here with Jack, and today we're going to talk about an interesting topic in the child welfare world, which is also sometimes controversial, adoption. So, Nicole, we actually have something in common. I mean, we, we probably have a few things in common. We have a lot in common. One of the things that we have in common is that all of the children in my family and all of the children in your family are our children through adoption. That is correct. None of the kids in my home are biological, and they were all adopted through the foster care system. Right. And all of my kids are adopted. I have one adopted through international adoption. And three through foster care adoption. And I'm not sure if I ever talked to you about this before, Nicole, but I've also been through the process of domestic private adoption as well. I don't think you have really told me about the domestic private adoption. When I was little, I always thought I would adopt. And that was kind of the only way that I thought adoption occurred. I remember even trying to convince my parents to adopt when I was like 12 years old. They were not not having it at all, but I tried a lot. <laughs> so I'm going to talk a little bit about my adoption story, which is completely through foster care. And it was really unexpected. Basically, I was a guardian ad litem in another county. I had been doing that for a couple of years. That made me a lot more informed about child welfare and the foster care system. I never thought I was going to foster. And then I just kind of started dealing with like some not so great foster homes. I decided I could do it better. I don't know if that's true or not, but in that moment, I decided I could do it better. So I started taking the classes. My adoption story was not what I thought it would be at all. Number one, I did not think that I would be adopting through foster care. I truly came into foster care because I wanted to see like a better foster home with older kids that were in it. You know, it was really hard to place older kids and foster homes, teenagers, that's really where I thought I was going with this. Teenagers, maybe they might have a younger sibling, help them reunify. That is not at all what happened. I ended up being matched with a sibling set while I was taking my foster classes. I was only like maybe two classes in and they started talking to me about these kids. And I learned later that some of the stories and examples of kids that they were talking about in class were my kids. 
probably should have scared me off, but I didn't like make the connection until much later. So I was matched with them during class. It turned into a whole other big thing, which was done on a past episode. I brought siblings together and ultimately ended up adopting them. At the time, they were three, had just turned six and about to turn eight. Not the ages that I thought I would be fostering. Teens really seemed to be the ones that needed the most help. What I didn't realize then is that beyond teenagers, keeping siblings together is something that is incredibly difficult and unfortunately doesn't happen a lot in foster care. And of course, like two months later, the world shut down and we were in COVID times and quarantined to our house. So I was single mom with three kids, demanding career, the world shut down and we were homeschooling. After adopting, the siblings met a teen who I then ultimately adopted. That was also very different than I thought it would be. I I learned a lot and it was like all very unique to me. Adopting through foster care, I learned so much. Before I married Jack Daddy, I I did feel called to adopt, but I didn't really know what that would look like. One of the things that I was very certain about when I discussed this with him was that I wanted our first child to be adopted. I expected that I would have biological children, but I wanted the adopted child to come first so that there was never a question about the fact that they were chosen. You know, obviously Jack Daddy got on board. Started with international adoption because that was just what I knew about from the community of people around me. And I just felt really strongly about how the lack of resources and social services in other countries meant that when you were a child without parents, that your life was at a much higher level of danger. You know, in some countries, it means you don't have medicine and you don't have food. I did a lot of research before we started. I knew that there was a potential for unethical adoptions internationally, and I didn't want to be a part of that. I wanted to help. I didn't want to hurt. I researched a lot and really found that there were only a couple of agencies that people would recommend. So the one agency that my friend had also worked with, when we reached out to them, we basically just said, what is the country with the most need right now? And they told us it was Ethiopia. So we signed up for that. We went through that process. We were officially ready to be matched. And the country of Ethiopia shut down international adoptions. And we had someone locally who had done our home study. She would reach out every once in a while and be like, hey, there's this teen who's having a baby who wants to have her child be adopted. And is that something you would be open to? I was like, maybe I should be open to that. And I reached back out to the home study provider and she provided the contact information for the attorney that was handling the situation. And um, that is how we began our adventure in domestic private adoptions, which definitely left a bad taste in my mouth and the way that it works, at least in the state of Florida. They did match us with two different children that were given to us and then removed shortly thereafter. The attorney that we had been matched by multiple times, was very aggressive and high pressure about wanting us to be matched again. At the same time, a friend of ours was doing missions work and had reached out to a mutual friend and talked about this orphanage that was kind of in a more rural area that had some kids that were about to age out. 
And we're asking if we knew anybody that would be willing to adopt internationally. And so my friend came to me first about one of the boys. And when she talked about him to me, I said, to be honest, have you thought about adopting him? Because I feel like this is more for you than for me. And she was like, I am done with kids. I have my kids. There's no way. Anyway, he, I think he just turned like 16 and got his driver's license. And yeah, she's his mom now. Then <laughs> through that, we got connected with the Ugandan adoption where our oldest son was adopted through. And my son and her son grew up in the same orphanage together. Together. We did have one international adoption. We had one, I guess you would call it failed international adoption, uh, two failed private domestic adoptions. At that point, I was like, hey, let's create a child together so that this beautiful boy of ours will have siblings. We would go see friends and he would be jealous that he would have to come home to nobody and then they would have siblings. I was like, okay, let's do this baby thing and got pregnant very quickly every time, but had one ectopic pregnancy after the next. While that was incredibly challenging, my heart was just so tied to the fact that there were children who needed parents that weren't able to be with their parents that even though it was a difficult time and a difficult situation and very heartbreaking to have multiple miscarriages, it's not like adoption is second best. To me, it was always my first choice. Once we got through all that, we were considering what all the different options were, whether we would do another international adoption or adopt from foster care. What we ended up deciding was that if we are foster parents, whether we end up ever adopting again or not, there will be kids in our home that will be able to play with our son and he will have, you know, like a live-in buddy for however long the kids are with us. Obviously, through that process, we've now had a large number of placements and we've been fostering for over six years and we have adopted three of our foster placements through being foster parents. And we'll talk about the different ways that foster care adoptions happen. But, you know, Nicole, I just wish we had another point of view to add to the conversation here. Do you want to introduce our guest? We do have another perspective here. Our friend Corinne is joining us today and I am so excited that she's going to talk about her perspective. Hi, my name is Corinne. Um, I'm a foster mom. I've been a foster mom for four and a half years now. We started out differently than you guys did. We started out with biological children. My husband Adam and I got married young. We got married when I was 17. We had our first when I was 21. So we had one when I was 21, 23, and 25 years old. And we thought we were done. And Adam could have a zillion kids. And my body was like, not me. So, <laughs> but my heart was still open to more kids, you know? So we kind of just put a pin in it. And we were like, I wasn't open to having any more children biologically. Adopting was something that was always just kind of in the back of my mind. In 2015, I lost my grandfather to cancer and he was like somebody that I really cared about. And my family immigrated here from Cuba and he was just, just our person. So when he passed away, it really was kind of like a tuning fork sort of thing for me for my life where I was like, what do I want my life to look like? In the end, when I'm sitting here surrounded by my family, what do I want it to be? Adam and I talked about it a lot. And one of it was like, we've always wanted to adopt. So if we want to do it, there's never going to be like a good time, you know, like, so let's just make it now. I started researching adoption and looking into it. And it's 
prohibitively expensive. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I was like, okay, well, there's fundraising, there's stuff we can do, you know. But then as I was researching adoption, I started coming across all of the stuff you were talking about, about unethical adoptions, um, experiences of adult international adoptees that felt very stripped of their culture. I was like you where... I didn't want to cause more harm. This like seed of adoption was really like in there then. And I was like, but I really want another child. And I knew that I didn't want to have another child biologically. And I knew that I wanted to be helpful for children. And I knew that there were kids in need. So then there was this like conflicting thing in me that's like, well, these kids do exist in these orphanages, but I also don't want to contribute to something harmful and it was important to me to be able to speak the language of where I was adopting from because I felt like it would create a little more transparency. We ended up going with Nicaragua because I can speak Spanish. They had a really interesting program there. They called it fostering, but you would go for two months and basically foster with matched children there that the rights of the parents were already terminated. The program sounded really good for us. I'm like, it's a three hour flight. I speak Spanish. My job is flexible. I figured I would take the kids with me and Adam would just kind of fly back and forth. We would do the. I used to say two month fostering to people to not horrify them. It was actually like a six month situation. <laughs> it was like two to six months. <laughs> the truth them, comes like, out. Nobody knew. <laughs> Even months. Adam thought it was two months. <laughs> yeah. yeah, There were definitely people that got stuck there for a very long time. <laughs> kind of like the 12 months here in, you know. <laughs> the joke of the 12 yes. months to permanency. Yes, yeah. So it was like two months there, but it was never two months for anybody. But I was like, <laughs> okay, we can we can deal with this. So yeah, we like went for it. We went for it wholeheartedly. We really felt like that was what God was calling our family to do. Spoiler, it wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you know, um, it's a really intense process. It's like so much more intense than getting licensed to foster. Like you're dealing with the international, like immigrating a child. Yeah, immigration, everything like that. And the home study and just all of the things. So we were 100% in, very paid up on this adoption. (laughs) And... (laughs) As we all are when... (laughs) Yeah, and same same situation. Um, our stuff was all in. We were just waiting for matches and the program closed. Interestingly, like while I was in this process, I had joined a lot of Facebook groups of transracial adoption, um, education and voices from adult adoptees. That was very important to me to be able to parent my kids in a way that was going to honor them as they grew. And that would be the least harmful and least traumatizing way to raise a child in all of this, the need for foster parents just kept coming up. Like I just kept hearing, you know, about the need for fostering. And when we started this whole thing, I wasn't in proximity to any foster parents. So I just thought there's these random teenagers that need to be fostered or something. Like I definitely didn't think there were like babies, toddlers. I don't know. Like I just, I was very ignorant to the whole thing here. I know and I understand it now, but 
then I just, I truly had no clue. I had no clue to the point that during orientation, when I ended up deciding to foster, I asked them, I don't remember if I said how many months or like what it was, but I asked how long the wait would be until we were matched with a foster child. And the lady goes like, she was like, did you say how many months? Like if it's more than like 48 hours, something's, <laughs> something's arrived. <laughs> Even once we got to that point, I was still very ignorant to like how many kids the magnitude of the need here in our state, especially in our counties that we're in. But going back to the international adoption, when the program closed, it was really confusing to me at first because I really felt like like this was what we were supposed to do. But I also throughout those year, year and a half, however long it was that we were going through the process, foster care was just like knocking on my heart, just like the whole time and reunification and the importance of keeping a child in their family and supporting a family. There was a sense of relief when they told me that the program closed. The next day, the director of the adoption agency called me and she said that we could move all of the paperwork to Lagos, Nigeria. And it was really important to me to be able to speak the child's language. So it was just like an immediate no. And she's like, oh, the program's great. You know, da, da, da. And I'm like, no, like, I know that's not, that's not it for us. And she basically told me like, you're going to lose all of this money you've put in. And I was like, it's fine. Like I, I remember saying it like before I even talked to Adam, I was just like, I know that's not it. Like, I know that's not it for us. And I just want to like say, I don't think there's anything wrong with adopting a child that you don't speak their language. It was just important to me. I really wanted to make sure that as much transparency was available as possible. And if I couldn't read the papers that the parents were signing, I feel like when there's a language gap, things can fall through the cracks. I read some major horror stories of things like that happening. So I was like, it's very, very important to me. She was like, Oh, we'll have a translator there. I'm like, no, you don't get it. Like I need to, I need to understand. <laughs> so yeah. So that door closed and, and then I shut it all the way. We just knew then that it was like that our hearts were for reunification, for supporting a family. Didn't even care if we adopted at that point anymore. It was just like deep down, we knew we would eventually adopt, you know, even though we haven't yet. We're four and a half years in and <laughs> no adoption. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have like 20 adoptions in the next two months. So you're good. <laughs> I know, I was like... Like we started this journey in 2016 and like there's still no adopted children here. I probably have an unpopular opinion, especially with two people who went down the path of international adoption. But I always remember thinking international adoption would never be the way I would go because there was such a need domestically. I just always thought it would make more sense to me to have a domestic adoption and help people in my community. Just kind of where my heart was always drawn to was more local. I think everybody is called to do different things. And that's a good thing because if we we're all called to do the same things, then things wouldn't get done. If that's we we're true. all called to be doctors, we wouldn't have engineers. So right. no judgment to anybody who has a different opinion about how they want to try and make a positive impact on the world or not. I don't know that I would recommend to someone to do an international adoption option at this point, I would say if somebody were considering it to just do your homework. So one of the most prominent features of an international adoption, it is 
freaking pricey. When we started our international adoption, looking at the whole amount in the end, it was not a reasonable thing for us to think like, let's go do this international adoption, right? It is a very expensive endeavor. And I just felt strongly like that that's what we were supposed to do and it would work out. Oddly enough, it did. Definitely a God thing where like something would be due and we would be like, how are we going to pay that? And then I would get a refund from something that I didn't realize I was getting the very day and it was down to the pennies. That is a consideration. If you don't have all of it at the get go, you should probably have an idea of how it might be obtained in the end. The other thing about an international adoption is that it almost always involves extended international travel. This obviously depends on the country. If you're adopting from another country and your child is is coming from a place where there's a different language, a different culture, different everything that you would go there and experience it with them. And I love the fact that I can tell my son, I love you very much in his native tongue and he can say it back to me. I love that we have little things that we can say to each other in his language. International adoption, it may involve extended international travel. So depending on your job, that may or may not be possible. Also, you will hear a lot of stories about unethical situations with international adoption due to different laws in different country and different cultures and the language gap, as Corinne had mentioned, there's just a lot more opportunity for people to be taken advantage of. I've seen it personally from people that I knew, people that I met while I was there. Things just aren't always the way they should be. I was going to point out too, when there's that much emotion involved too, I feel like there's a lot of money, a lot of emotion on every side of it. And it just creates a lot of room for manipulation and corruption. The other thing about international adoption is that you're dealing with different countries, laws and customs and government entities and changing laws. And there's just a lot of dynamics there that can change and end up making things different. For example, when we arrived in Africa after 30 hours on a plane, after we got on the plane, but before we arrived, one of the laws changed that would require us to do additional things for the adoption. By the time we left, even more things changed for the visa. Over the course of a longer period of time, lots of things can change. So you just have to have the expectations that you might have to be flexible and everything can fall apart at any minute. The other thing about international... terrifying. It is terrifying. Yeah. I was in a Facebook group with other people who were adopting from Nicaragua. It was a very small group of people in this group. So everybody kind of always knew who was there because it was always maybe like 20 of the U.S. foster parents there. I basically saw in real time as the program closed and these people who had been living with their children for months had to leave them. Like they had to just leave the program closed. The Mm -hmm. people who were already in the midst of the adoption, the fostering, they didn't get to complete it. There wasn't like a rule that said, okay, here's the cutoff. You guys get to adopt. No Mm -hmm. more new ones. It's like if DCF shut down here or something, like you wouldn't get to just keep your foster kids in your home. You know what I mean? Like if they were like, oh, there's no more foster system. You don't just like automatically get to adopt the kids. I don't know what would happen to them, but I don't know. It's crazy. When I met Jack Jr., I told Jack Daddy, this is my kid. I don't care if I have to move to Uganda for the rest of my life. Like this is my kid. Just so you know, this is where we live now if we can't adopt him because... (laughs) Like, that's my son. And um, yeah, anything can happen. And when you're dealing with other countries, like things are just more volatile. 
The other thing I mentioned about international adoption is that it's a different type of trauma, different type of struggle. In America, it's drug-driven loss. Drugs Mm -hmm. are so rampant in our country and so many families are destroyed by them. A vast majority of kids are removed either directly because of drugs or indirectly because of drugs. I'm not saying internationally drugs are not an issue. In most of the situations, they're not the majority. Um, They're much more rare. The losses are much more a lack of resources. Two other quick points is that it makes it more challenging to find biological families for children who were abandoned and you don't have any type of information about biological families. And it's also more challenging to maintain connections with those families because you're bringing their child across the ocean to a different country. It's like a whole other level of trauma. Certainly in Uganda, but also in other countries, most births don't happen in hospitals. Birth certificates aren't a thing. Without having that record of who your parents are, and when the majority of people are not born in hospitals, it makes it that much more of an abandonment when there's no way to go back and find you. Interesting what you say about birth dates, because our Guatemalan daughter, like, it's totally unclear when her birthday is. <laughs> her birth certificate's weird. And when she came here, she told me a different birth date than I ended up seeing on her birth certificate. There was one point where I had to ask her parents about a birth date for something. Basically, the mother had to ask the father's birth date. And she's like, let me go find the file. Like she had to go like she didn't know her husband's birthday just because it's just not not a big deal there. One of the things that is a primary point of private domestic, just like international, is that it costs a lot of money. From my experience, private domestic often costs a similar amount to international. However, the money you're spending with international, it seems to add up. You wouldn't go to a lawyer and expect like them to do the paperwork for free. So it makes sense that you're going to spend $3,000 on an attorney to do all of the paperwork for the court hearings and all of that. A lot of the other fees are like the immigration fee that you're paying the government. It's just the cost of a visa or whatever. A lot of the money is your traveling fees. You're spending your money on a guest house or a hotel, on airplane tickets. From my experience with international adoptions, the fees mostly make sense. I completely agree with that. Domestic, it it doesn't add up. It's too much profit. But then you're looking at this attorney why do they need ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000? Yeah. What exactly is the work that they're doing for that money? Private domestic adoptions can be what? Like $50,000, $70,000 in the end? Obviously, private domestic, you're dealing with a lot of money. International is also a lot of money. In my experience, private domestic felt a lot more like what's going on with this money. Also, and this is something that is in the state of Florida that is not in every state. If you're adopting private domestic, you can be required to pay for the mother's living expenses, I think up to like six months. That feels a little bit like you're paying someone to have a baby. I don't know if this is true or not, but if they decide not to go through with the adoption, are they not in debt at that point? I'm pretty sure that there's money held over their head. It might just be like a coercive strategy of telling them like these people have paid all of this. I don't know. But I do know that somebody I talked to was like the birth family had paid for all of this stuff. And they told me that I need to just give them the baby. That can't actually be like in the contract, though. Like if you are if money is exchanged hands during the pregnancy, you must. No, no, no. Legally, to go through. Yeah, Mm -hmm. legally not. I think it's just like 
But would it not put them in debt? Because if not, like, why wouldn't anybody be able to just be like, yeah, I'm going to give this baby for adoption and then pull out. And honestly, I felt like the situation that we got involved in, it is probably something like that. That felt uncomfortable. Like there's so many lots of, like when we adopted from Uganda, like they asked us like a million times, you've given no gifts to the orphanages, right? Like you gave no gifts to any, like the witnesses, like you've never like gone to them and offered anybody money. Like there are so many points in the process where you are questioned and it makes making sure that nobody's like giving bribes to like take a child. And then in the state of Florida, be dropping all kinds of cash for domestic private adoptions. It doesn't make any sense. It's yeah. yeah. The other thing that I thought was really weird about domestic private in Florida, the period of time that the mom has to make the final decision and sign I think it's like within 24 hours of giving birth. Out of the three of us, friend, you are the only one who has biologically given birth. What are your emotions doing at that point? It's not, I don't think that anything I said or did or anything within 24 hours of giving birth should be counted for anything, like any yeah. legal documentation, <laughs> like nothing. It's absolutely wild to me that like... <laughs> I have been with enough people while they were giving birth to know that the hormones that go through your body in order to birth a child do not create for the most logical decisions. So one way or the other, like a mom signing surrenders on her newborn baby that she doesn't really want to, but she's scared and emotional or a mom changing her mind because of the hormones, you know, the child might then end up in foster care. I don't know when that time frame should be. Like, I don't know the answer. I don't think it's natural, honestly, for a mother to give up her child. I don't think that's a natural thing to happen. That's why foster care is, it's such a sad thing. And it's also like a necessary thing. There are children that end up not being able to be with the people who gave birth to them, but Aside from rare exceptions, I feel like most kids in foster care were very much wanted by their parents, you know, like, and I think that's the thing. I I think it's not a very natural thing for a woman to decide to give up her child. So I think that that happening without coercion, without manipulation, without, I think a woman doing that of her own sound decision is not as common as people would think that it's going to be. I have been in the room with my niece and nephew both being delivered and I'll say something and she'll be like, when did I ever say that? And I'm like, right after you delivered or, you know, the next day. (laughs) And she's like, I don't remember anything. Right. She has very finite things that she remembers. Meanwhile, they're like emblazoned and branded in my brain. I'll never forget them. (laughs) I gave birth to Ransom in a tub. And Adam still says, I have this memory of when he was coming out, like the midwife told me like, you can feel his head now. So I was like, oh my gosh, like it was incredible to me. Right. And I look at Adam and I was like, in my head, I say lovingly, like, Sweetie, feel his head, you know? And Adam says, like, I turned to him like the exorcist and I was like, feel his head. (laughs) And he's like like, looking at this murky water and he's like, oh God. (laughs) I'm like, to me, it was like this beautiful moment to him. He's like, oh no, 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 no. (laughs) 
So yeah, no, I don't think 24 hours, but I don't know what the answer would be. I just, I think these women in general need support and need. And it's like a hard thing to even say because, you know, so many women have postpartum Mm -hmm. and that's like a much bigger conversation now. I don't want to take that away from anybody that wants to give their child up for adoption because I think if there is a woman that is choosing that for whatever the reasons may be, it is her choice. Absolutely. At the end of the day, it is her choice and that choice should be supported as long as it's her choice. Private domestic, we talked about lots of money. It may (laughs) involve extended domestic travel, but rarely, but like oftentimes people adopt from a different state and they might have to stay there for like a week or something, nothing crazy. There's the risk of unethical situations. The child is losing their culture and their family, but at least maybe not their community um, in language. Um, every state has different laws. So these situations also vary highly. I mean, one of the cool things, if you are involved in a private domestic adoption, is the potential for open adoptions, which allow the child to have that connection with all the people that love them. If someone is not able to raise a child, at least they can have a relationship with that child. And it's a little bit less of a loss. What holds the adoptive parent to an open adoption? In other states, there are Mm -hmm. laws. In Florida, there is no requirement to follow through with anything. There are other states where you are held to that. One like major example that comes to mind that many people would be familiar with are Caitlin and Tyler Baltiera from Teen Mom. Teen parents gave up their child, walked into an open adoption with the adoptive parents, Teresa and Brandon, and their lives have played out on TV over the past, I don't know, 12, 13 years. And you see them often struggle to have communication or visits, even though they entered into an open adoption. So that's why I was wondering if there were other states that held you to an open adoption. So that's private domestic, not recommended by me, not recommended by Corinne. I don't know. Are are you giving a thumbs up or a thumbs down over there? No, I think I'm giving a thumbs down there on that one. I think with foster care, we kind of look at like two different types Um, where you might walk into an adoption. Um, You might walk into foster care where there is a child who's in the system but is already legally free for adoption. Um, And then, of course, as we have all experienced, you have a placement that ends up being with you long-term and ultimately parental rights are terminated for a gazillion reasons. And then adoption becomes a possibility. For me, I experienced the adoption where the children were already legally free for adoption, meaning their parents' rights had already been terminated. There was not kind of all the other aspects of going through the foster care system. Although you were, they were in foster care, there was not uh, visits with the parents or any of the other things. It was just basic case management visits and then sibling visits until the siblings could be reunified. Um, into the same home. And there were other processes that go along with that. Foster care, at least here in Florida, I'm not sure what the rules are kind of everywhere. And at least in our area, uh, there are no fees for the adoption. 
You don't have to travel because they're literally within the county that you're living in or there is much lower risk of unethical situations. I think the risk in general is much lower. Wouldn't you guys agree? At least in the state of Florida, there is so much oversight on what's going on that usually when there is an unethical situation, most of the time, not always, most of the time, one of these third party situations will stop it. What I think speaks the most to this is when it's your long-term placement. When you've had the child since they first came into care, you know everything for the most part. If you're involved with the case, you're going to court, you're trying to co-parent with the parents. It's not like the the child is going to be TPR'd from the parent for some crazy reason and you're never going to know. Especially when you're involved in the case and you're an active participant in the case, it really minimizes the ability for you to be unknowingly involved in an unethical situation. When you're dealing with adopting foster care with a child who's already been terminated, like an available child, for example, on the Heart Gallery, there are so many kids, especially the older kids who are waiting on a family. And the fact that they've already had their rights terminated shortens the process a little. And like you were saying, there's older kids and then there's large sibling sets that you often see, um, or not even large sibling sets, just maybe siblings of two. Our circuit, they're focusing and licensing foster parents that are going to immediately adopt kids that are, the rights are already terminated. They're they're looking to adopt. Although we do not have a foster to adopt situation here, they are matching families with children who are available for adoption to kind of make sure that these kids have a family and have a home and aren't in a group home situation. The other cool thing in foster care adoptions and with both, um, either a long-term placement or directly is, I mean, the judge asks the child, the case managers ask the child um, if they want to, as long as they, you know, are old enough. My kids spoke to the judge privately, at least two or three times while they were with me. I mean, they told me what they said after the fact, but before the fact, I had no idea what they were going to say. So they got a chance to say what they wanted and how they wanted things to be for themselves. Even though they were only six and eight, pretty young, they still spoke up. I've seen a lot of kids who were disrupted from adoptive placements by people who weren't foster parents and just went to adopt from the foster care um, from an available child. I think it's really important before considering adopting a child who is waiting is to have a little experience with kids who experience trauma. It seems like the best choice if you want to adopt, to adopt a kid who is waiting. However, If you're coming into this without appropriate expectations of the behaviors that you might see with this child, you're setting yourself and the child up for failure. The one who's going to be hurt the most in the situation is the child. I personally always recommend that if someone is thinking about adopting from foster care, that they spend a little time as a foster parent first, because I think it would be really hard to go into it without having any awareness of what that really looks like. Big things can look like little things and little things can look like big things, depending on how you approach it. The other thing I wanted to mention, and this is something we talk about a lot on the podcast, is that foster care is about reunification. It is not about adoption. If you're going into foster care for the purpose of adoption, you have to keep primary that uh, the goal is reunification. It's a weird dynamic, right? Because you're like, let's get this kid home. Let's help this mom. Let's get her on the right page. Let's model for her. Let's work with her. Let's help her. Let's get her in these classes. 
let's get this kid home. Let's get this kid home. And then you reach this point sometimes when a kid can't go home. It's this weird dynamic of I was supposed to be pushing this kid to go home. But it's a weird flip when that happens. But you really can't advocate for this parent the way you need to if you're going into it wanting to adopt the child. Agreed. Mm-hmm. You have to love the child like they are yours, regardless of what is happening. And ultimately, you have to have some sort of love for them. You don't always like them, but on some level, I care about them and I I want them to succeed. I don't want them to fail. I think it's also probably why I'm really super open to bio connections, even post adoption. And I think it's super important, even though it's not always very easy. One of the coolest things about this is a long-term foster placement that turns into adoption. You know this child for a really long time before you even have the opportunity to commit to them. The other thing is it's the least amount of loss to the child. It's one less removal. If, if you're adopting the child that has been with you since they were removed, for you to be able to adopt them means there's less of loss for them. Thank you so much for joining us today. Make sure you subscribe and follow us on social. We hope that you join us again next time and keep on fostering the future.